Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by AnchorLite. For more information about all of AnchorLite's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. I am a Jacques-Louis David junkie, and always have been from the moment I first laid eyes upon his famous Oath of the Horatii painting in an Art History 101 class. In truth, I love all the neoclassicist French paintings of the 18th century, so it's not just David that gets me going. But for me, David is one of the true top guys. He's just my jam. The way that he was able to present classically inspired bodies and scenes is just so beautiful. And even better, the way he could hint at a wellspring of incredible emotion with just a figure's upturned finger or painfully curled toes. And then David goes from being the best neoclassical painter to becoming one of the best painters of the early Romantic period, jumping from one category to the next, achieving fame in portraiture and grand historical scenes. I love his works. But I've got to say that some of them can be a little too busy, though mostly with good reason. There's just so much going in his monumental painting of the coronation of Napoleon, for example, at the Louvre today, that I can barely focus on the emperor himself, let alone anything else. And it is for this reason alone that one of my favorite works David created is one of the quietest in his oeuvre. It's solemn, funereal, silently glorifying. But it was just these attributes, as well as the subject of that painting, that really got viewers angry when seeing this work for the very first time. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today, we're continuing our dissection of single works of art that shook their contemporary worlds, covering a painting that still causes waves, even today. In this episode, we're looking at Jacques-Louis David's incredible The Death of Marat. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Jacques-Louis David had the trappings of the good life, so it's no surprise that he went far, very far, in the years leading up to the French Revolution. He was born in Paris in 1748 and lived a relatively quiet childhood until the age of nine, when his father was killed in a duel and his mother, newly widowed, fell into a deep depression and determined that she could no longer care for her young son. With that, she sent him to live with some rich uncles, and while that seems harsh at first, it may very well have been one of the best things that could have happened to young Jacques-Louis, because his uncles made sure that the youngster received the very best education and possible training that he could have. 
Like many creative types, he wasn't a really good student, mostly because he liked to spend more time doodling in his notebook than listening to lectures. So he was very much like his contemporary Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun in this way. He knew very early on that he wanted to paint, and though he was met with some initial opposition from his uncles, they eventually relented and sent him naturally to seek training from the very best painter of his day, Francois Boucher, a Rococo artist famed for his flowery, over-the-top pastel scenes inspired by romance and myths. I also love this period in art, so I'm a Boucher fan as much as anything else, but sometimes I gotta admit that all I think about when I think about Boucher are tiny little pink cherub butts. Seriously. Google Boucher paintings and you'll start seeing that there are an awful lot of rosy pink bumps flying around in those things. But David wasn't really into the overblown Rococo thing. He was more fascinated by the burgeoning interest in Europe of all things classical, all things inspired by the ancient world. And so, noticing this tendency, Boucher kindly rescinded his offer of an apprenticeship and sent David to a friend, Joseph-Marie Vien, who was very much a better advocate of this new direction in art. And under Vien's tutelage, David flourished. Not that he always got what he wanted. There were some serious early misses in his career when David applied for the prestigious Prix de Rome, or the Rome Prize, which the Royal Academy of France granted to outstanding painters so that they could have the opportunity to live and study in Rome and learn from the great arts of both the ancient and near past. For a blossoming neoclassicist like David, this was catnip. He had to go to Rome. But each year when he applied for the prize, he was denied. And that really angered him. So much so that one year, he even went on a hunger strike to protest the whole academic system. But finally, on his fifth try, he succeeded in winning the prize and sent off with Vienne to Rome in 1775. In Rome, David seems to have undergone a bit of a mental backflip, and he found more inspiration in 17th century Roman artists like Caravaggio than in the ancient sculptures and relics that abound in the Eternal City. But then, things began to shift again, as David spent more and more time making copies and studies from ancient sculpture, visiting the newly excavated ruins at Pompeii, and reading philosophical treatises on the ancient world. Truly, old Rome finally had him in his grasp. But so did the Renaissance, and he felt a particular affinity for both Raphael and, tellingly for our tale today, Michelangelo, because he later reworked some elements of Michelangelo's most iconic work for his own purposes. Twenty years after winning the Prix de Rome, we find David at the top of his game, creating indelible works of art that honored subject matter from the ancient world. Philosophers like Socrates and rulers and politicians like Lucius Brutus and even mythological or fabled stories like the tale of warring factions in Italy in the famous Oath of the Horatii painting. But then, in 1789, the French Revolution began, and suddenly the ancient world just didn't hold as much appeal. The present, the now, the history happening all around him, that, that was truly incredible. And with that, David, a firm supporter of the revolution, changed tax and opted to fervently document the goings-on of his own time and place, creating indelible works of propaganda for the so-called New French Republic. It was a decision that seemed like a good idea at the time, but like many things associated with the French Revolution, it eventually came back to bite David. 
One such work that would eventually become a problem for David is Our Star of the Day, a posthumous portrait of a revolutionary leader and radical journalist with close ties to David himself, a man named Jean-Paul Marat. Both David and Marat were hugely involved in revolutionary efforts. David was a member of the Jacobin Club, which was one of the most influential and violent groups of the revolutionaries, and Marat wrote for and published a newsletter called L'Ami du Peuple, which was a revolutionary newspaper through which propaganda was easily spread. David, like many other supporters and activists within the revolution, looked up to Marat as a true hero, a person on what David considered the right path, a man who was both exhaustive in his efforts to change the country and to do so while living a so-called virtuous and fearless life. But such a loud and public existence, particularly at a very unsettled time in history, meant that Marat, like so many others, was a prime target for anyone who viewed him as an enemy to their own cause. And one of those people was a woman by the name of Charlotte Corday. Charlotte Corday was one of the many critical of the direction of the revolution as it slid quickly into the so-called reign of terror. And she sided with a group called the Girondins, many of whom were based in the northwest French town of Caen, which was where she lived for a time. She quickly fell under the Girondin spell and was confident that their plans for the new France were correct, and that others who opposed the Girondin plans were those who were destined to throw their country into ruin. And the top of her list of baddies was Jean-Paul Marat. For three months, she plotted an attack against him, which finally came to fruition on July 13, 1793. On that fateful day, Marat had eventually planned to attend a public event, but things weren't going very well for him. He suffered from a chronic skin condition that left him in constant discomfort and pain, and that eventually got so bad that he started working from home, often in his bath, which is where he would spend hours at a time soaking to get rid of that discomfort. That day, someone came to visit him at home, bearing a letter claiming that she had information about the Girodans in Kong, which she knew Marat was opposed. She pleaded to be let in and to see him, and upon hearing her requests, Marat himself invited her to his room, much to the displeasure of Marat's overprotective wife. Under the guise of an informant, Charlotte Corday sat by Marat's bathtub and told him of the uprisings planning to occur in Kong, and even went so far as to proffer a list of names of possible traitors, which Marat diligently copied on a parchment atop a makeshift writing block next to his bathtub. Marat, satisfied with this information, then assured Corday that these traitors would all be guillotined in a few days. And so he settled back down into his bath. And it was at that moment that Charlotte Corday struck. She whipped out a butcher's knife from inside the folds of her dress and bore it into Marat's bare chest. And the bleeding was so severe and immediate that apparently he died within seconds. For David, Marat's death was a deeply personal loss. Not only did they stand on the same side of history and politics, but David also considered Marat a friend. So of course it made perfect sense that he would be the one to memorialize him, quickly after the assassination, in a loving portrait. But a simple, straightforward portrait remembering Marat as he was in life just wasn't what David had in mind. He wanted something more dramatic, a little more timeless, a little more spiritual, perhaps? Coming up next, right after this break, David's sacred and profane masterpiece. Stay with us.
Oftentimes, there's so much mystery surrounding the personal lives of our favorite artists, what they were like, what made them tick, and what inspired them to create their works of art. Uncovering details about an artist's life can provide us keys to better understand their work, their problems, their successes, how they made particular pieces, which is why I recommend getting The Great Course's fantastic digital video course on the genius of Michelangelo. Presented by distinguished art historian and Michelangelo expert William E. Wallace, this course looks at the depth of Michelangelo's achievements and accomplishments, as well as the confusion surrounding his life. Like all of those stories about him working totally alone, lying flat on his back to complete the Sistine Chapel, Wallace dispels the myths and focuses in on the real story about one of the most famous artists in art history. With the great courses, you can learn from some of the world's brightest minds and completely at your own pace. And when you purchase these digital video courses, they become a part of your personal collection that you can return to time and time again at no additional cost. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving my listeners an incredible deal on the genius of Michelangelo. Order this digital video course and get 85% off the regular price. That's almost $275 in savings and you can start enjoying it immediately. But this fantastic offer on this course is only available by going to my special URL. So don't wait. Go now to thegreatcourses.com slash art. That's thegreatcourses.com slash art. Life can get really crazy sometimes. Between my busy young family, a full-time museum job, this podcast, and a few little fun side projects, and oh yeah, having a life, it's like I sometimes need to remind myself to take a breath. Modern life isn't simple, but a modern home can be. That's why I am so excited about All Modern. All Modern is an online-only destination for everything modern, everything from mid-century to Scandinavian to minimalist, but they are priced for real life, not for designers or for those with deep pockets. It's seriously simple too. You can shop from home or on the go, find that sofa you saw on Instagram but for way less, and get it fast. All furniture ships for free and most in just two days, not six to eight weeks like all those other stores. And All Modern even offers in-room delivery and assembly. I've been living with the same sofa for almost 20 years now and I am way overdue for a fresh upgrade. So I've been using All Modern to keep my eyes on some pretty luxurious tufted sofas that will look so chic in my house. And best of all, their prices don't make me want to cry. New beautiful furniture is in my reach and it can be in yours too. So go to allmodern.com slash artcurious and use the promo code artcurious for 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's allmodern.com slash artcurious, then use promo code artcurious. All Modern, the style you love, the prices you want, when you want it. It's that simple. I love to deeply connect with my family, but sometimes the busy aspects of daily life just get in the way. Among all the details about schedules and to-do lists, I don't get the time to sit down and just talk or share stories, which is why I love StoryWorth. StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your loved ones to share their stories with weekly emailed story prompts, questions you've never thought to ask. And then at the end of the year, they'll get their stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. I recently signed up with a free account on StoryWorth, and I purchased a subscription for my mom as a one-of-a-kind Mother's Day present. And each week, StoryWorth will send her these emails with fun questions that she can then answer. And I personally can't wait to hear more about my mom's college and high school years, because from what I heard, she was this dynamo, an acclaimed actress, junior prom princess, and class president. 
and with fun questions like, have you ever encountered a celebrity or famous person? In addition to the really bigger thought-provoking ones, like how has the country changed since you were a child? I'm expecting a book that will not only bring my family closer, but also provide great topics for conversation at our next family dinner. StoryWorth is easy to use, and recipients can write stories and upload photos by email, on the website, or in the StoryWorth app. Plus, you can invite an unlimited number of people to receive and share those stories. And your stories and data are always secure and everything is private on default, so you can control who sees your stories. StoryWorth will make an incredible gift for Mother's Day or Father's Day, even for last-minute gifts. So for $20 off, visit StoryWorth.com ArtCurious and use ArtCurious when you subscribe. That's StoryWorth.com ArtCurious when you subscribe. Anyone who's had a migraine knows that they're the absolute worst. I've seen it with my loved ones firsthand. The light sensitivity, the inability to move without searing pain, and the frustrating feeling that you are missing out on the good stuff in your life. And finding something that can help you manage all of that, that's a struggle too. But now it's a little easier to treat your migraine from the comfort of your own home thanks to Cove. Cove allows you to get treated from home with a simple consultation by a licensed physician and then the prescription that they personalize to your individual needs is sent directly to your door. And the physicians with Cove don't leave you hanging either. They reach out a few weeks later to check in with you through their secure patient portal to see how you're feeling and to also work with you to educate you about migraines, their prevention, and migraine treatments. All doctors are licensed to practice medicine in your state and will oversee your progress with FDA-approved medication. If you suffer from migraines, the last thing you want to do is have to wait to see your doctor. With Cove, there's finally a way to get the help you need when you need it. And when you use my special link, you'll get your first month of treatment for free. Go to withcove.com artcurious. That's W-I-T-H-C-O-V-E dot com slash artcurious. Withcove.com slash artcurious. Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. Their products are cleverly designed to mimic human curves, providing supportive comfort for all kinds of bodies. Because we spend one third of our lives sleeping, so we should be comfortable. Now let's talk about the original Casper mattress, the one that is fast becoming the internet's favorite. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right amounts of both sink and bounce. And their breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And they don't just have mattresses for you. Casper also provides a wide array of other products like pillows and sheets to ensure your overall better sleep experience. And everything is designed, developed, and assembled in the US. Best of all are Casper's affordable prices because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to you and delivers right to your door in a very small, how do they do that sized box with free shipping in the US and Canada and hassle-free returns if you're not completely satisfied. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. So check out Casper today. Get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com artcurious and using the promo code artcurious at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com artcurious and using promo code artcurious at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. 
Behold the Death of Marat, also called Marat Assassiné or Marat Assassinated, one of David's most famous paintings, and possibly his very best work, because the way David presents his subject is, frankly, incredible. He eschews most of the facts of the story outside of Marat himself, including Charlotte Corday entirely in favor of a spare scene befitting its funereal subject matter. Here, Marat's upper body slumps back against his cloth-covered tub, draped in a white sheet and with a green throw. His right arm dangles lifelessly, his hand still holding a white quill. Eyes closed and brows slightly upturned, his expression is a bit of a contradiction, as it reads both as serene and sorrowful simultaneously. There's barely anything but Marat's body to see here, for two-thirds of the painting above him is a blank space, a dusky setting of blacks and grays. There's nothing to distract us as viewers, so we can only really zone in on Marat's face and the deep gash just below his clavicle on his right side, which bleeds surprisingly gently for a fatal wound. But look around a little, and you can see more evidence of blood. A smear of a fingerprint on a piece of paper, a stain on a white sheet, the bathwater now tinged pink, and most tellingly, a bloody knife lying on the floor. So Charlotte Corday might not be in the scene, but her presence is made known, not only in that weapon, but also in a letter clutched in Marat's left hand. It reads in rough translation, quote, July 13, 1793, Marie and Charlotte Corday to Citizen Marat. My great unhappiness gives me a right to your happiness. Next to Marat's bath is a makeshift desk, a wooden block upon which Marat would pen his notes, screeds, and articles. Sweetly and simply, at the bottom of the block, David inscribed his own name and the words, To Marat. For a scene of an aftermath of an infamous revolutionary murder, it's actually all rather lovely. The death of Marat was first exhibited at the Louvre alongside another of David's commemorative portraits, though that one was less striking than the first. Comparing these portraits, one critic wrote, quote, Although these two pictures are conceived equal in their own way and in the best possible terms, artists especially admire the picture of Marat. Indeed, it is difficult to look at it for very long. So terrible is its effect." Unquote. But while artists apparently admired David's portrayal of Marat, the general public, even in just a short time after Marat's death, had changed its opinion on the revolutionary. After his death, as the direction of the revolution grew more dim and transitioned into that awful phase known as the Reign of Terror, Marat's once heroic image dissolved into villainous characterizations. Both conservatives and liberals regarded him as a barbaric monster and an instigator of destruction. His physical appearance, specifically that skin condition which David chose not to depict in the portrait, became weaponized by Marat's many critics. For example, the opening words of a 1797 biographical sketch described him as, quote, short in stature, deformed in person, and hideous in the face, unquote. This was the realm in which David's memorial was presented to the French public. People were mad, really mad, to see Marat so idolized. They were furious. And just as angering as seeing Marat celebrated in this manner was the manner in which David chose to present him. Remember how David loved the great artists of the High Renaissance, especially Raphael and, hint, hint, Michelangelo? Well, some keen-eyed viewers might already have caught the illusion that David is making here to one of Michelangelo's most famous sculptures, 
the Pietà from the Vatican. In that work, Jesus slumps on Mary's large lap with his head falling back against her arm, and Jesus' right arm dangles in a very familiar way. David certainly saw and admired this work when he lived in Rome after winning the Rome Prize, and he also saw another work of art that took its own inspiration from Michelangelo, a painting by Caravaggio called The Entombment of Christ, which featured that same limp pose and dangling arm. David here lovingly calls back to two of his favorite artists, and even further heightens the connection by calling upon Caravaggio's habit of stark and dramatic lighting for his scene of Marat's death. All art historical references and nerdery aside, you might not be too surprised to hear that this kind of characterization or portrayal was not received so well by the general public. If you listened to our last season on shock art, recall the episode we did on Albrecht Dürer's self-portrait from 1500, the one where he specifically modeled his own appearance on that of Christ from centuries of artistic depictions. As the 19th century and its religious revivals inched closer and closer, that kind of representation of borrowing from Christian imagery for lay purposes just didn't fly anymore. The image of Marat as a holy martyr, combined with the fact that many just didn't like him anymore, meant that David's hopes of truly honoring his leader and friend were quickly dashed. Due to growing dissent over the revolution and its leaders, as well as his own allegiances to the revolution, David found himself in hot water and was being prosecuted for his participation in the terror. And so he fled France and sought exile in Belgium, where he remained for the rest of his life. During that time, he was forced to conceal the death of Marat in order to save it from being destroyed. From 1795 onwards, one of David's pupils kept the painting in hiding, and it fell into relative obscurity as Marat himself became a footnote in history. After David's own death in 1825, the painting was rediscovered when various items from David's studio were sold off, and it too was considered for sale, but there were no takers. Even then, it was still considered too controversial to sell. It was not until the 1860s, 70 years after Marat's murder, that a more sympathetic attitude towards Marat himself arose. In his piece, Marat, l'ami du peuple, or Marat, the friend of the people, writer Alfred Bougiard noted that if Marat had lived, he surely would have saved the revolution, and thus thousands of lives, a sentiment that was later echoed by German philosopher Friedrich Engels in 1884. From then on, Marat's legacy shifted in a more positive direction, and he was especially lauded as a communist hero throughout Soviet Russia. Divided views of the revolutionary leader continued to prevail, but David's portrait remains a highly respected work of art, a staple of neoclassicism. It also has its own afterlife as a pop culture reference in its own right, with artists like Edvard Munch and Pablo Picasso creating their own versions of Marat's death scene. Stanley Kubrick also references it in a scene from his 1975 film Barry Lyndon and many, many other references. But my favorite has to be artist, designer, and choreographer Robert Wilson's video art take, presenting Lady Gaga in a gorgeously lit, gender-swapped rendition. So even though many viewers don't exactly know who Jean-Paul Marat or even Jacques-Louis David is, the influence of this French painting is long-lasting. Next time on the Art Curious Podcast, we're jumping into the 20th century with the piece of art that shocked and changed it all. That's in two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. 
This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Adria Gunter. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daveraineydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Natalie Broyhill. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. Additional editing help is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLight. AnchorLight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, AnchorLight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more details about our show, including the image mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the shocking works of art history. Thank you.